0: All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us for SMA StratCom Academic Alliance Speaker Session entitled Delaying Doomsday, the Politics of Nuclear Reversal. And I'd also like to thank today's speaker, uh, Professor Rupal Mehta, for taking the time to present today. Um, so before we begin, I just have a few quick housekeeping items. So we'll be having a Q&A session at the conclusion of the brief. Uh, so throughout the presentation or during the Q&A, feel free to submit your questions through the live event Q&A chat. It's a chat icon, and it has two overlapping speech bubbles, and one is a question mark. Also, be sure to type in your name and affiliation before you submit your question, or if you prefer for your name to not be recorded, go ahead and submit your question anonymously. You can also vote on which questions you'd like to be addressed most by hitting the like button next to that question. So now I'm going to briefly introduce today's speaker before I turn the floor over to her. Professor Rupal Mehta's uh, research interests lie in international security and conflict with a particular interest in nuclear security, latency, extended deterrence, nonproliferation, force structure, and deterrence theory. Um, Her book project, entitled Delaying Doomsday, explores the conditions under which states states that have stated nuclear weapons programs stop their pursuit. She's also a member of the University of Nebraska's National uh, Strategic Research Institute, where she's a member of the US.com Academic Alliance as well. Uh, her co-authored work has appeared in the Journal of Conflict Resolution, where she's a researcher with the Center for Pacific Studies at the University of California, San Diego, uh, and she explores the evolution of cross-domain deterrence in the 21st century. Um, so Professor Mehta, I'll turn the four of you now. Thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and uh,
1: share my slides. Um, so this is actually based on my first book project, as Nicole mentioned, which is um, Dilling Doomsday, The Politics of Nuclear Reversal. And this project has been something I've been working on for almost a decade now. Um, it's actually been the focus of my PhD dissertation, uh, my first book, actually my second book, and now it's a slew of sort of projects I have emerged from that over the past several years. Um, And this project really began with what I think was a a key puzzle for me as I was starting graduate school, which was sort of observing the intelligence that was coming around in 2007 about the Iran nuclear program um, and all these sort of different estimates about how likely Iran was to get nuclear weapons, uh, what the possibilities were for stopping their pursuit, Um, And and whether or not there were options that were available to the United States and other members of the international community to sort of stop Iran in its tracks, if the intelligence was correct, and it seemed like it was, especially in the national intelligence estimate of 2007, that Iran was well on its way to pursuing nuclear weapons Mm -hmm. and was um, intending to acquire a nuclear program to potentially change the balance of power or status quo in the international system, especially in the region at the time. Um, so that project began uh, in 2008 and it, it has, it's now 2021 and I'm still sort of working on it in part because there's so many different aspects to this puzzle and to this question that I think are really, really fascinating. Um, so the first question that I think is really interesting is um, a, a basic one, which is, is it even possible? For the international community um, to extend external influence on the domestic policy in another country, especially when it comes to something as important as nuclear decision making. Is that even something that we can do? And are there historic pieces of evidence over the past 60, 70 years, especially since. Uh, the sort of start of the modern uh, era and the establishment of the nonproliferation regime is that even something that we can sort of look to historically to see if there's precedent for that. The second key question that I think is really interesting that has come up quite frequently is, um, what can we learn from changes in um, proliferating states and uh, the likelihood of successful nuclear negotiations um, is it something about these countries that might be more or less meaningful um, in terms of being likely to end these programs? And then I think simultaneously, is there something within the counterproliferating state here? I focus mostly on the United States because that's my focus of interest. Um, is there something about our domestic politics, our ideology, ideology, and our preferences that make these negotiations more or less likely. So that's the sort of crux of the, of the project and all the questions that I've been pursuing.
0: Nicole, do you have those slides by any chance? They just came through, but they're downloading. So okay. um, I will bring them up as you continue speaking. Perfect.
1: All right, and just to give a shameless plug for my book, as Nicole mentioned, um, so my first book is entitled delay's Doomsday, The Politics of Nuclear Reversal. Um, and the follow on book is actually a co-authored project with William Spaniel, who's a professor, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Pittsburgh. And we sort of take another, glance at this question about the likelihood of counterproliferation and nuclear negotiations by exploring a set of formal theory um, and case studies over the past 70 years to see, well, if force is not an option, um, and that's sort of going to be one of the, the key things that I talk about um, in, in, this, uh, in this presentation, but if the use of military force is actually not an option, uh, what are the other options we have available? So um, uh, uh, the the sort of the, the focus today is going to be on this other question which is can we exert external influence and what does that look like? Next slide. Next slide Great okay so, This is probably not a surprise to anyone in this audience, but there is a bit of a trade off when it comes to the pursuit of nuclear weapons. It is no doubt that nuclear weapons are incredibly costly. Um, Not only are they ridiculously expensive, but they produce a whole host of other costs that I think are, are, are really important to consider. Um, so first, there's obviously security costs associated with pursuing nuclear weapons. Um, the photo here on the right-hand side is actually of uh, a suspected Syrian nuclear facility in Deir al-Zor, um, uh, the, the photo on the left is what the facility looked like before um, a suspected Israeli attack on the facility and the photo on the right is what it looked like afterwards. Um, and this is just to demonstrate that throughout the past 50, 60 years or so, there's been a number of times where we've actually seen external actors um, take on the responsibility or take on the action to stop a nuclear weapons program by pursuing military force. Um, so there's all sorts of sort of security costs that come with pursuing nuclear weapons. You might be further um, aggressed on by adversaries, including neighbors or other regional actors. Um, there can be the possibility for proxy wars or even low-scale violence, even if you are in a nuclear weapons state. Um, so certainly there's sort of these whole host of security costs. There's also um, a variety of domestic political costs associated with pursuing nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons come at the opportunity cost of pursuing other types of technologies or other types of domestic policies. Sometimes that's not always in the interest of the populace, and so they're less likely or they can be less likely or less willing to pursue a trillion dollar nuclear project if it comes at the expense of something else that they really care about. And of course, as I mentioned, there's these monetary costs. But given all these costs, you know, Without benefits, it would be really surprising that anybody, anybody wanted to pursue nuclear weapons, um, and people do, and they are successful in doing so, in part because there's a whole host of benefits that come along with it. Um, first of all, you're able to deter, at least our, our, our experience and our literature and some of the evidence that we've seen to date has suggested that we can deter large-scale violence. You can often use it for compelence or coercion um, to get a better uh, change to the status quo in your favor. It can be very helpful in alliances. If you have an, a patron that has nuclear weapons, they can provide extended deterrence or a defensive commitment to protect you. Um, and lastly, there's opportunities for cooperation that may be less likely if you don't have a nuclear program and if you don't establish yourself um, as a member of a, of a sort of small group of regional or, or large scale powers. So there's a, a variety of cost and benefits that come with pursuing nuclear weapons. Next slide. So why stop, right? If it's the case that we have all these benefits, why do states actually stop their nuclear pursuits? And this is where I think um, our experience in the policy community and our experience looking at historic events has often disrupted our ability to see the large-scale the large picture here. Uh, Because I think there's actually been, and this is something that I was working on um, throughout my project, just sort of highlighting how how much more likely it is that actually countries start and stop their nuclear programs. It's always really surprising to people. But that's actually the modal outcome here. Um, So we actually see a fair bit of evidence that countries start and stop their nuclear programs. And then the question I think becomes, why is that the case? Why do they actually stop their nuclear programs once they've started? And if it is true that that is the modal outcome, how and in what way can the international community exert pressure to stop those nuclear programs? And how does this actually work? What are the mechanisms by which we can actually see the start and stop of nuclear proliferation? Next slide. So this is the universe of cases that have engaged in nuclear weapons activity since 1945. A lot of these are the usual suspects of countries of concern or uh, countries that were quite worried about or have been historically worried about, um, including Iran, Iraq, uh, North Korea, Pakistan. Some of these are existing nuclear weapons states. Some of these are former aspirants. Um, but what we can see here is this is sort of a much more common um, outcome that I think a lot of us have often realize, especially if we sort of broaden the scope of what we consider nuclear weapons activity. For my purposes, I consider nuclear weapons activity to be both a technological and political decision to pursue a nuclear program, and both of those pieces are really important. Next slide. So as we can see here, um, of the 30. Let's see, uh, of the uh, 32 countries that have started and stopped nuclear programs, 23 of them stopped. Um, And I have an asterisk here for Iran, because at the the first time that I started working on this project, Iran had just entered into the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and had stopped its nuclear weapons pursuit. Um, that's now a little bit more in flux, especially after the Trump administration's withdrawal from um, the, the deal. And now we're starting to see murmurings of a resurgence of a Iran nuclear deal uh, with members of the P5. So I sort of put an asterisk there because it may or may not be included in our data set at different times. And then, of course, we have the nine remaining nuclear weapon states, um, the P5, P5 plus the de facto four nuclear weapon states. Next slide. And what's really interesting, I think, about this puzzle and the sort of the data that we've seen over time is that there's not a lot of clear time trends. Um, We start to see an increase in nuclear reversal, not after the non-proliferation treaty is signed, we start to see a little bit of an increase in nuclear reversal around that time in the 1970s. But a big bulk of, of the stopping of nuclear programs actually occurs in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, and what we've actually seen is a, a relatively static level of nuclear weapons activities since that time. So while this is obviously a pressing issue, in part because of the, the, the high danger and the high risks associated with nuclear weapons, um, what we have not seen is something that uh, President John F. Kennedy was quite concerned about, which was a world just full of nuclear weapons. We actually haven't seen that particular vision or, or nightmare of, international, of the international system come to light. Next slide. So what is my theory here? The argument that I make um, in my book and and sort of this bigger project that I focus on is that nuclear decision-making actually can be impacted by external factors. Um, There's been a whole host of evidence from um, qualitative and quantitative uh, studies in political science, international relations, that show that these changes are done at the domestic level, that they can be um, affected by leaders or by regional dynamics or even by um, uh, domestic constituencies within a country. But I'm going to present the argument um, that this is actually, this is also impacted by what happens at the international level. Um, And so what we have here in the sort of model that I'm going to present today is that um, a state like the United States, a member of the international community, a leader of the non-proliferation regime, observes nuclear activity um, in a particular set of proliferators. Uh, And because it does not want to uh, have that state proliferate, because it does not want to see the nuclear club expand, it starts to begin negotiations or starts to bargain with a variety of inducements, both positive and negative. And what the outcome of that is, is that the state reverses its nuclear program. That sounds really simple, really easy. Uh, It sounds great, but that's probably not what explains all of these different countries. So I, I start to go into some of the conditions that can impact the likelihood of nuclear reversal. What's important though to note is that operating in the background is this threat of preventive war, um, which is what I started out the presentation with, the sort of thinking about what the, if the if these entire negotiations are sort of operating in the shadow of, nu- of military force, that changes the calculus for proliferators to think about whether or not they want to accept the deal that's being offered by the US or the international community or whether or not they want to maintain their nuclear program and potentially suffer the risk of a preventive military strike or the use of military force like um, the suspected Israeli strike on the Syrian nuclear, suspected Syrian nuclear facility in Daryl's war. Next slide. So how does this work? So the US offers, or the US or other members of the international community, for the most part, it's the United States. Even if other countries are um, really involved with these programs, the US is doing a lot of heavy lifting in part because of its just global leadership and being a hegemonic international system. So it offers a set of rewards and punishments during negotiations. And it's really this combination that's incredibly critical here. Rewards provide a face saving cover for political leader or for leaders that want to end a nuclear weapons program, especially if it's not been successful or if it's been somewhat domestically, politically um, uh, uh, undesirable or unappealing. It sort of provides them a cover to say, look what we're getting in exchange for giving up our weapons program. And uh, simultaneously, the inclusion of economic statecraft or threats of changes to trade policy or even economic sanctions can persuade the populace to accept the deal to prevent continued punishment um, if this is lifted and provided other rewards. And in the book, I go into a lot of the conditions under which When sanctions are applied and then not lifted, that can sort of impact the likelihood of these deals being successful. There are a couple of scope conditions that I I sort of think about throughout um, the theory in the book and some of my other projects, which is looking at leadership transition in the proliferating state. I'm going to provide some evidence for that today. And then looking at leader ideology in the counter-proliferating state. And here I'm thinking again about the United States, but other countries can, can play a big role in this as well. Next slide. And lastly, the outcome that we all care about here is that there is a change in nuclear decision making. Um, So you have these inducements, both rewards and punishments that can compel changes. And nuclear decision-making, ideally to stop or reverse the nuclear weapons program. This can take on a variety of different characteristics. It can be a full stop to nuclear weapons program. This can mean uh, returning nuclear infrastructure or technologies to um, nuclear weapons states, um, like happened after the fall of the Soviet Union. Or this can be stopping pursuit, even if there has not been anything fully built up. A couple of important implications that stem from my theory is that this can work even on adversaries of the United States. Um, All that requires is that we sort of shift the combination of rewards and punishments and come up with tailored inducements for each of those states. Uh, And lastly, as I mentioned, that this is all sort of happening in the shadow of military force. But what's critical to note is that military force on its own can actually have the perverse outcome that we want. Um, on its own, yes, preventive war or threats or use of military force can actually destroy facilities, but can actually also increase um, the desire or the likelihood that a leader can, can use that or leverage those attacks to actually sustain a weapons program and garner more domestic political support for that, especially if they're attacked and they think it was they were, they were attacked um, sort of
0: inappropriately. Next slide.
1: So what are the um, implications or the hypotheses that come from this? Um, External inducements with the threat of war, I argue, should lead to nuclear reversal. Uh, The use of inducements uh, depending, uh, regardless of proliferator type, so useful for both friends and foes, should lead to nuclear reversal. And um, inducements offered during moments of leadership change when a new leader can come to power and sort of signal different preferences should also lead to nuclear reversal. Um, So then I'm gonna sort of present to you the evidence that I've leveraged over the past several years to present um, what I think are some really compelling findings for these hypotheses. Next slide. So the evidence I've marshaled over the past uh, decade or so with this book and other projects has been um, a large end analysis of inducements on nuclear reversal since 1945 to 2007, some other projects have expen- extended that timeline to 2018. Um, this includes me gathering new data on scope conditions, including leadership change, proliferator type inducements, um, including economic uh, and military assistance, or sorry, economic assistance and military assistance. I also provide, um, in my book and other research, illustrative case anecdotes of Pakistan and China, which obviously represent two sort of failures of this counterproliferation strategy, so in, in what sense they failed. I also conduct um, three in-depth historical analyses of India, Iran, and North Korea, and those analyses leverage original archival and interview data with policymakers from the IAEA, the United States, Iran, Pakistan, Argentina, and Brazil. I was fortunate enough to spend about a month in Vienna interviewing a variety of different actors from the IAEA, including the now um, uh, Secretary General uh, Rafael Grossi, who's pictured on the bottom right. Next slide. So my findings, thankfully, are supported, Um, so uh, next slide. We can actually see um, with uh, the data I'm going to show in just a moment that external inducements and inducements regardless of proliferate or type do actually increase the likelihood of nuclear reversal. Next slide. Um, And what's really fascinating is when I, I sort of look at this overall analysis and then I try to dig a little deeper to see what's actually doing the heavy lifting. Potentially, surprisingly, because um, this is not what's often talked about in the policy community or within the political science literature, positive inducements are actually doing the majority of the work here. Um, they're required together, but if we start to look at granular or disaggregated data, we actually see the positive inducements are often carrying the weight in, in terms of what is most effective in convincing all sorts of countries, both foes and friends, into reversing their nuclear program. Next slide. All right, so just to quickly go through a couple of these extensions, which I think are really fascinating and I think also I, I think are helpful for us in terms of understanding both current countries I'm concerned, but also thinking through what happened if we're faced with new nuclear aspirants. Fingers crossed that's not the case, but in the event that we do. So the first um, extension that I focus on is leadership change in the proliferating state. So how do changes in leadership or in um, the executive among proliferators? impact the likelihood that the external influence that we're trying to observe um, actually has the change in decision making that we're trying to see. So the argument that I present is that nuclear reversal is actually more likely when new leaders are coming to power and are willing to sort of so- showcase new preferences that they might have, especially if they're provided new opportunities to end their programs that were initiated by predecessors. Next slide. So how does this work? Right? So ideally, what we have is a new leader is coming to power and can signal that they're willing to change their course without really dismissing or um, providing a sort of criticism for a prior leader's position or something that could jeopardize that country's reputation. And so simultaneously to this change in willingness, so to speak, we also have a change in opportunity at both the domestic and international level. New leaders can um, use their rise to power as a mandate or as, as a forum to enact change and abandon weapons, without necessarily paying the political costs in part because and many of these regimes, though not all, um, they have a few years before they're going to be up for re-election. And so they have a little bit of time to signal those changes, especially domestically, without reaping the cost of doing so. And of course, at the international level, when you have a new leader that comes to power, um, the United States or the countries might try to take advantage of that and see, well, is there something that's going on that's different here? Can we use the transition to test the waters of nuclear negotiations, and potentially actually lead to reversal with this new face to this new actor. Next slide. So here again um, my findings were supported. Next slide. And one more next slide. So when we look at the likelihood of um, inducements on conditional leadership change and this background threat of military force, we actually see that, again, inducements have a positive effect on the likelihood of nuclear reversal. This is good news. It means that there are going to be these unique opportunities or those windows of opportunities, especially um, for countries where they're experiencing leadership change to actually change decision making and make nuclear weapons potentially less appealing or less likely. Next slide. Um, And I I wanted to um, sort of use this large end data, but also to sort of corroborate these findings by conducting interviews with um, IEA officials and with other sort of state level officials to get a sense of whether or not this was something that was going on in the back of people's heads when they were conducting the negotiations, especially in the lead up to the JCPOA. And so um, a a couple of the the folks that I interviewed actually were able to substantiate some of these arguments. Right, So we have here some quotations that say almost four years of negotiations that were complicated and frustrating. Finally, different administration, different political mood. Um, Iran wasn't ready to cooperate in 2001. The big turnaround was President Rouhani. And then lastly, this was actually from an Iranian counselor um, who who was sort of stating the position of our country. President Rouhani believed the Ahmadinejad team wasn't qualified to negotiate but received permission from the Supreme Leader to start covert negotiations. So we start to see that there is some disentangling of what those preferences can look like when you have leadership change. But what's really important to note here Um, is that I'm not advocating for regime change, especially not forcible regime change. I'm not suggesting that when we're facing an adversary that's pursuing nuclear weapons, we should go ahead and and start um, engaging in foreign-imposed regime change. This is merely to suggest that if we're observing this in a country that is expressed interest in nuclear programs, that might be a better time to start the process of um, figuring out if that new leader or that new administration or that new party, whoever it might be, is interested in nuclear reversal. For sure, the United States did the same thing with Kim Jong-un and was sort of immediately notified that he was not interested in giving up a nuclear weapons program. Um, but I think it's something that we can start to consider, especially if we're observing leadership change in some signals. Um, so even President Rouhani in Iran, when he came to power, uh, when he was elected, said, you know, now is the time for us to start talking to the United States again. So he had sort of expressed some interest and signals and preferences for that. Next slide. Alright, so just really quickly, um, I wanted to go through what I think is the newest part of this research um, and the part that is, I think, is really interesting and a big departure from me, especially from the work that I do in international security, is just to sort of look at the American politics side, of or the domestic politics side of it. Um, so the second extension that I focus on is um, preferences or ideology within the counterproliferating state. Um, and the, the question that my co-author and I are pursuing is how do opportunities for nuclear reversal vary as a function of leadership ideology in those counterproliferating states? And what we're trying to do is observe whether or not the differences between liberal and conservative leaders, and here we're building on some of the literature from uh, biopolitics and genopolitics, um, as well as American politics, we're trying to assess whether or not liberal leaders in counterproliferating proliferating states have different preferences and different ways of pursuing those negotiations and so by using some of those terminologies and some of those um, examples from that literature we argue that liberal leaders are more likely to be risk tolerant and provide opportunities for the reversal while conservative leaders are less likely to, because of their different perceptions of the costs and benefits of these negotiations, um, and what's really striking about this, and what we think is a, a major contribution of this work, is that this is, you know, the the exact opposite of what some of the literature, the literature and some of the scholarship would have suggested, when we think about the correlation between partisanship and being a hawk or a dove, right? So historically, people have assumed that. Military hawks um, are more likely to be, uh, members of the Republican Party are more likely to be conservative, and they're going to have a more risk-tolerant approach to the use of military force, and we're sort of presenting the polar opposite argument by looking at ideology and not partisanship. Um, Next slide. So together, get this, we sort of do a, a couple of different things. We relax the unitary actor assumption to explore how specific leader traits, including beliefs, rhetoric, personal backgrounds, can influence nuclear decision making, and we build on some of these theories from um, sociology and psychology to assess how Um, These decisions are influenced by ideology Um, and what we're, as I mentioned, what we really are interested in in, in, and pursuing is how they actually yielding opposite predictions to what we would expect. So we're focusing here on the biological origins of ideology um, and specifically looking at a couple of different mechanisms, including risk perception and openness to new experiences. Next slide. And so the empirics that we're using for this particular project is a comparative case analysis of both the Obama and Trump administration's approaches to the Iran nuclear program. Um, and then we sort of do a shadow case of uh, US North Korea relations under the Bush and Clinton administrations. And again, as I mentioned, the key variables we're focused on here are risk perception, openness to new experiences, and perceptions of gains. Um, and the outcome we're interested in is, you know, were they actually likely to initiate negotiations, and how did that, um, how did that come out? Next slide. So I'm not gonna read through all these quotes, but what was really striking when we were going through um, the, the literature on this and also a lot of the data that we were interested in is that there's a, a, a lot of evidence to suggest, not just from analysts or um, sort of you know policy scholars that are observing uh, what's going on with these administrations, but actually from presidents themselves where they talk about a lot of these mechanisms, where they talk about being open to new experiences, where they talk about the difference between relative and absolute perception of gains and their, their willingness to take on additional risks than what they were assuming. And so there's some quotes here from um, both uh, members of the Obama administration as well as President Obama himself. Next slide. And the same thing we can actually see from the Trump administration era, we actually see President Trump um, make some arguments about why he's averse to engaging with or negotiating with the Iranians, uh, being quite nervous about uh, the Iran nuclear deal and being concerned about engaging in new experiences. And then sort of thinking about the relative gains between what the United States would gain versus what the Iranians would gain and vice versa. And here we're actually starting to see these mechanisms really come into play when we are looking at the rhetoric or statements from leaders themselves. Next slide. So what are the implications from all of this um, literature and all of this research that I've thrown um, at you today? And there's a lot, but I think they're all really important. And I think they can help us better understand this sort of broad phenomenon of nuclear counterproliferation that seems to be, and and rightfully so, is a key part of U.S. foreign policy um, today. Um, So I think first and foremost, and perhaps one of the most important things that I've i'm sort of coming around to and i think it's been really helpful for me as a researcher but also when i'm sort of thinking about this in terms of policy is inducements both carrots and sticks that are offered from external actors can actually lead to nuclear reversal Um, and they can do so in ways that i think we underestimate so that's a really powerful implication from this research Um, Second, when some of these punishments are six, like economic sanctions or even threats to use of military force are used on their own, they actually reduce the likelihood of nuclear reversal and they make proliferators more intransigent and more willing to keep to their guns and, and, and sort of stay on the nuclear path. This is an effective strategy for all proliferators, whether or not they're considered to be um, allies of the United States, countries that are historically have convergent preferences or are otherwise sort of key members of the international community, as well as adversaries. Um, so this can work even with countries like Libya that we would otherwise think they're never going to give up their nuclear weapons program. These opportunities can increase when we um, use them or leverage periods of leadership change. This is, again, not to say that we should engage in forcible leadership change, but if that opportunity arises, that might be a particularly useful time to try to scope out whether or not a new leader is interested in changing nuclear decision-making. Um, the ideology of counter-proliferators, um, especially in the United States, although uh, the next part of this uh, project is going to be starting to explore other states or other counter to see how ideology, more so than even regime type or party partisanship, in part because some of the counter-proliferators in interest, like Russia and China, don't have a ton of variation in that, And um, so we're trying to see whether or not ideology influences the likelihood of negotiations and just sort of preliminarily our, our research indicates that it can actually play a significant role. Um, second to last we're looking here at the importance of military forces operating in a background now much of this requires military force although as I mentioned at the outset of this presentation my next big book project uh, with dr. Spaniel tries to relax that assumption and see what happens in military force is not an option what are some other ways in which we can leverage conditions in the environment to pursue and succeed in nuclear decision and nuclear counterproliferation and lastly, and I think pessimistically, although um, you know, this is this is not always the case, but it can be, um, all of this might still fail, right? It is very likely or it can be likely that despite our best efforts at all of these things, right, providing carrots and sticks pursuing strategies that don't rely solely on punishment, um, in providing tailored deducements, using opportunities for uh, during leadership change, having a counter-proliferating leader that believes in risk tolerance. All of these things might still fail if you're faced with a leader, I think that we're observing in North Korea, like the Kim family, especially, most recently Kim Jong-un, that seems very committed to nuclear program despite all the, Uh, all the other options and evidence that suggested that that may not be the right path, especially given the domestic political and domestic situation in North Korea. Um, So all of this can still fail, but I think from a policy perspective, understanding when and how it might succeed, is really where our focus should be and and sort of thinking through all these steps is a really important part of the nuclear proliferation process. So apologies uh, for the technology issues and and thank you to Nicole for helping with the presentation. Very much look forward to your questions. Thank you again.
0: All right, thank you Dr. Mehta and no worries, Uh, teams often has issues. (laughs) All right. Um, so we're going to go ahead and move on to the Q and A portion of the team session. Um, so feel free to keep submitting your questions through Live Event Q and A chat if you have them. Um, so our first question is from Colonel Sehun Kim from Stratcom, and the question is: I brought, I bought your books. I bought your book three days ago, and I enjoy it. I do have one question about the book. From history, the U.S. has been in negotiation with North Korea for denuclearization. North Korea continuously enjoys the rewarding and showing little progress in denuclearization, even if um, now North Korea has over 60 nuclear weapons, what is the appropriate approach to North Korea?
1: Yeah, this is the tough one. That's why I sort of ended with, you know, my resignation that all of this can fail and our strategy and our our commitment and our efforts may still not work. I mean, I think if I had an answer to that, I'd probably have a very different job, but um, I mean, I think the best answer I can provide is um, the work I'm doing is, is probabilistic, right? We're providing on average trends. Um, and there are always going to be instances in which strategies are going to fail. I think if you were to look back at, and I, I, try to, I try to do this a little bit in my book and as well as in my book with Dr. Spaniel, I think if we look back at every instance of administrations working with the North Koreans or, or attempting to engage with the North Koreans, we can highlight parts of those deals or parts of the negotiations where we thought it was going to fail, right? So in the um, Clinton administration, there was a fair bit of pushback from Congress about um, the agreed framework and ultimately the United States, as well as North Koreans, abrogated on this deal. Um, Similarly, in other subsequent administrations, you know, the Bush administration referring to North Korea as an adversary in a rogue state, party acts as evil, like these are all elements that make negotiations challenging. This is not to say that We should be rewarding North Korea for continually, uh, you know, engaging in nuclear, in their nuclear program and progressing their nuclear program, but I think there needs to be at least some degree of um, uh, research that's done into why things have not worked out in the past. I think the other big part to the North Korean puzzle is China. Um, It is not that surprising when you have a nuclear patron like China that you're going to see that, despite our best efforts at sanctions or other types of punishments. If you have a country that is compensating for those costs and losses, ultimately that's going to outweigh the North Korean precision on, on whether or not sanctions or other types of punishments are going to change their, their decision making. And lastly, this is something that I delve into with my newest book, is you know there's a lot to say about the uh, North Korean regime, a lot that we don't know or I don't know as a scholar in the United States, but I think needs to be delved into a little bit more. I think there's a lot of area a- a- study scholars and Korean study scholars that have looked into this, but you need to better understand the dynamics within the regime which is already so challenging given the nature of the regime to best understand why it is that they've been so reticent or resistant to engagement with the united states or any other country um, over the past several decades but it's a, t- an absolutely fair point i don't think i have a, a specific answer to what's the appropriate approach other than learn from the past and, and continue to delve into this case and try to find more data that we can be used for those
0: negotiations. Alright, thank you, Dr. Mehta. Um The next question comes from Frag from the Air Force A3, um, and his question is, how do we handle the situation of an actor that sees nuclear weapons as a shortcut in terms of time or money to military superiority or deterrence against intervention that is preferable to building a strong conventional force?
1: I mean, I think that we should um, uh, we should sort of look at the situation like most of the um, nuclear proliferators to date. I mean, I think this is especially describing Pakistan that was facing a superior Indian military throughout much of the um, latter half of the Cold War in the turn of the century and then started to see the, the utility in having nuclear weapons. Um, and in that case, I think we do the same thing that we've tried it historically, which is identify what the inducements are that would be most effective so in the Pakistan case uh, Pakistan really wanted a security guarantee which we were unwilling the United States was for a variety of reasons was unwilling to provide um in part because the Pakistanis were quite worried that they would not be able to withstand or would not be able to counter a strong conventional force by the by the Indians and this was their way to sort of shortcut, as you say, um, to to match them, or at least to counter them, to provide that deterrent effect. Um, one thing that the United States can do is um, identify opportunities for military engagement, whether it's through assistance, whether or not it's through defensive commitments, security agreements. Um, in some instances, we've even extended the nuclear umbrella to countries to prevent them from pursuing nuclear weapons in exchange for our protection in the event that they are the targets of foreign aggression. I'm thinking here about Taiwan, Zakhir, et cetera. So that's part of, I think, the key here, but I, I think the answer is we just sort of look at this as, what is it that they're trying to use the nuclear weapons for if it's to um, counter a conventional a, mili- a conventional military superiority in a regional or other adversary? Think through what those
0: inducements would best look like for them. All right. Thank you, Dr. Mehta. Um, this next question uh, does bring up India and Pac- uh, Pakistan. And this question is, how do off- uh, how do our cultural biases hinder us in these negotiations? Can you address why offering a reward-based system allows those on the other side of the negotiating table to save face, especially those who come from cultures that have a different view on this? Um are so important to consider i believe that our blindness in these different cultural contexts is a key factor that the us in general doesn't understand about other cultures uh, with a particular emphasis on iran india pakistan and many others
1: uh, this is another great question and, and thanks to everyone so far for their really excellent questions um, yeah this is a tough one i'm not a cultural expert um, but from my limited experience in um, conducting interviews with um, political officials or scholars from other countries. This comes up a lot, is the sort of the, the idea that the United States is often blind to the fact that the reasons that they're pursuing nuclear weapons are are varied or are slightly different than what we presume them to be. So especially when it comes to Iran and India, you know, this, this sort of search for prestige which they think is coming through nuclear weapons is something we talk about that is a little bit different for, um, for leaders or even for domestic political or domestic constituencies in those countries. And so, for example, when we talk about the nonproliferation regime and especially the nonproliferation treaty, this comes up a lot when we think about the haves and the have nots. India, for example, has been quite blunt about the fact that they believe that it is really unfair that the P5, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council have nuclear weapons and simultaneously restrict other countries from pursuing them when they haven't lived up to their part of the grand bargain of the NPT, which is that they'll start to denuclearize and um, reduce their own arsenals or engage in disarmament. Um, And so when, when you hear arguments like that, you know, the next point that they often make is, well, then it's no surprise that we're gonna violate the or renege on the agreement ourselves and pursue nuclear weapons. And so I think this idea that there's different perspectives on these parameters or different perspectives on a lot of these um, mechanisms is really important. I think when it comes to um, what I call sort of saving face or providing a domestic political cover, I sort of think of that as more of a a political question than a cultural one. I think this is something that most leaders do, which is they want to engage in a policy maybe that's seen as undesirable to the populace. How do they provide incentives for them to do that? Money is usually a good one. There's probably some others, but this is a way for them to sort of do the policy that they prefer without facing the political costs of doing so. Um, So I think maybe culture plays a little bit less of a role there, but certainly there's going to be ways in which we're handling these negotiations. We mean the United States are handling these negotiations, and um, I I think there's been a lot of work done by the United States to better understand cultural differences when it comes to some of these things. But certainly, I think doing um, more work on that and, and sort of realizing that the way that we see historical events is not always the way some of these other countries see historical events is really critical. I think it also helps us to figure out paths moving forward.
0: All right, so a slight shift here, but you mentioned the um, the uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, um, and Tim Munch brings up this uh, this in his question, um, and the question is, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons entered the force in January 2021. Based on your research, do you expect this treaty to influence counterproliferation and nuclear reversal?
1: I wish I was more of an optimist and just believer in some of these treaties um, than I, than a lot of my colleagues and and people that are far smarter than me are. Um, I'm I'm not. I don't think it's actually going to change or, or I don't think it's going to positively influence the likelihood of counterproliferation In part because we've already seen so many sets of treaties that are similarly non-enforceable. Um, be ratified, and yet we haven't seen the types of outcomes that we would expect from those treaties. Um, and so even when we're thinking about things like the Convention on the use of chemical biological weapons, or even on the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, all these other sort of international institutions that have been ratified in the international system, they haven't had the effects that we're looking for. Um, especially when you have existing nuclear weapons states that have shown no sign of giving up their nuclear weapons, or no sign of disarmament. Um, I think that it's going to be incredibly difficult to convince all other countries to abandon them or prohibit them. I'm not that optimistic about this. I'm not even optimistic about the likelihood of counter-proliferation. I think if you are the type of actor that wants to pursue this most dangerous and most uh, devastating weapon, a treaty isn't probably going to stop you, as it has not done historically. Um, So I'm not that optimistic about it. But what I do think can be very helpful is if you start to see action from the P5 on um, questions or debates about disarmament, questions or debates on enforcing other international treaties or working to reestablish other international treaties like the INF Treaty. I think that would be something that could be very effective in convincing potential nuclear aspirants not to go down that path or to at least uh, be willing to engage in negotiations with who they what they think are violators of other treaties themselves right so i think this would be have important ripple effects throughout the international arms control regime if we start to see positive movement on any one of these
0: all right thank you dr meta um this next question comes from todd B. Z., the director of sma um, and this question is the breakup of the USSR appears to have created the conditions for many nations to abandon nuclear weapons pursuits Be forecast or could you imagine a similar precipitating geostrategic event or set of events that might cause a second wave of nuclear reversal?
1: That's a fascinating question and um, one I have not thought about in part because you know the only other, Geostrategic event or cascading event that could set off those types of waves, I think would have been something along the lines of what we saw this past year, which is a global pandemic, right? Where we see an exogenous force shake the entire international system sort of in one go. Um, my gut would say probably not. I think we're we're unlikely to see um, the few remaining de facto nuclear weapons states give up their weapons programs. And I think I'm going to even surprise myself here, but I actually think that we might actually see the opposite, where the breakup of the USSR had this this effect of convincing former satellite states of the USSR to give over weapons programs to the, the newly formed Russian Federation in collaboration or in cooperation with other partners in the international system. I think the opposite could happen now, where we actually start to see that the disruption to the international system, the highlighting of the inequities between the global north and the global south, increasing resource constraints, um, a a sort of a a sentiment of we have to be in it for ourselves because no one else is going to protect it, whether or not that's true or not, could actually precipitate a set of conditions where leaders are saying look, someone has to take care of us, it's not going to be anybody else. Let's go do something that would actually accomplish that. I'm not hoping for this or at all wishing for it. I just think it's the type of major geostrategic event that could have these unforeseen or unexpected or certainly undesirable effects on all sorts of things, including an increase in non-kinetic disruptive technologies. I mean, I think all the cyber attacks recently have demonstrated that Certainly, bad actors are not deterred by the fact that we're going through a global pandemic. I think we can start to see new actors pursue all sorts of different types of technologies that are devastating and disruptive. I can imagine even increases in in vertical proliferation where states are pursuing different types of nuclear technologies or related missile technologies that are more disruptive um, as a form of protection um, against both state and non-state actors. I'm not as optimistic as, as Todd, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm long, um, I guess is the sort of the outcome of that. All right,
0: thank you. Um, you just mentioned non-state actors, which uh, this next question is about from Jennifer Cable from US, USA USAICOE. Um, and the question is, your work deals with the national level nuclear reversal, but do you think that there is a threat from non-national or non-state actors pursuing nuclear power? If so what impact does that have on the countries deciding whether or not to pursue nuclear power?
1: yeah I mean I think this is a fantastic question and one that we've been sort of pursuing for a long time now which is keeping an eye on whether or not we're starting to see evidence that non-state actors that are interested in nuclear weapons um, my my sense from that literature and' I'm, I'm I'm not a part of it so I'm going to sort of try to summarize as best as I can some of the scholarship is, Um, So far, not as much. I think we haven't seen as much evidence that non-state actors are are really able to get their hands on nuclear materials and or nuclear technologies or components of a nuclear uh, weapon to be able to actually develop something that looks akin to a weapon that can be detonated. I think what's much more concerning is non-state actors pursuing other forms of WMD, whether or not it's radiological devices or chemical and biological weapons. I think the thing that usually deters non-state actors from pursuing nuclear weapons is infrastructure. Sometimes they don't have a place to build these things. Sometimes they don't have the land or the technology or the personnel or the infrastructure to, to build up a nuclear program. I mean, if you think about Libya, Gaddafi pursued a nuclear program for decades and to no avail, in part because even though it was a state actor, um, He didn't have the materials, he didn't have the resources, personnel, um, sometimes even money to get the technology to actually work. And so I think the same thing is likely true for non-state actors that are in that same position. But as I mentioned again, I think that the, the more issue of concern, at least to me, is the option to acquire other forms of WMD that are not as devastating in terms of scale and scope as a nuclear detonation, but certainly as devastating in terms of producing terror um, in a variety of different countries. And and to me, I think that's where um, the focus of our research should be if we're focused on non-state actors in WMD.
0: So, someone asked in the Q&A, how did the operation in 2011 by the U.S. and allies to oust Gaddafi, who had been previously convinced to conduct nuclear reversal, complicate future approaches to influence countries like Iran and North Korea to reverse their nuclear programs?
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it did play um, a a pretty big negative role, um, as have other sort of instances of what those adversaries perceive as the United States reneging on a commitment. Um, so if you if you hear um, both Kim Jong-un and um, other actors talk about what why they're really reticent to engage in a negotiation published in like news articles or anything something. Um, you know they, they reference the Qaddafi issue or the Hussein issue and they say, well look at what happened to Saddam Hussein and, and Muammar Qaddafi. And we don't want to be in that position seems like the safest way to protect ourselves is to maintain an operational nuclear weapons program that would actually provide a deterrent against forcible regime change. Um, And that's something that I think is very fresh in their minds. Um, I think they see a lot of parallels between themselves and Gaddafi for a variety of reasons. I think especially um, Kim Jong-un has referenced in sort of public statements, his his, the prescience of what happened to Saddam Hussein and why that's the reason why he, he doesn't want to stop the weapons program for a variety of other reasons. Um, I think it's less maybe salient for the Iranians in part because the regime is slightly different. And so You don't have a sort of uh, an authoritarian state in the same way that you have in North Korea and in Syria, in Libya, etc. Um, so it's a, a little bit different because there is at least from all accounts um, you know regular elections and whatnot so certainly that's something that they see as a little bit different Um, but I think it's something that when we're talking about how U.S. actions or actions of the international system impact you know future the impact precedents that are set and impact the future negotiations between the international community and aspirants, they haven't forgotten the past. Even Kim Jong-un talks to his, a lot about what happened between the Clinton administration and his dad. Or, um, you know, we, we see all sorts of, even the Syrians sort of talk about a lot of these experiences, and so they are not shy about expressing their concerns based on what they're seeing in the international system. Um, So, I think you're absolutely right to say that this is going to play an important role. I think we're still seeing the ripple effects of that, what, 10 years later.
0: All right, thank you, Dr. Mehta. Um, And I was able to combine two questions on Libya. um, So, thank you uh, to whoever asked these questions for for your questions. (laughs) All right, we've got about two more questions. Um, So, this first question comes from Todd once again. Uh, and he asks, in your research, have you seen the greater influences for nuclear reversal to be external inducements or internal domestic conditions like leader change or popular sentiments? Can external activities create the domestic or internal context or conditions for nuclear reversal?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I haven't done a comparison of those in in a horse race with each other, right, to see which one has a greater role. Um, But I really like this idea of how external activities can actually produce those internal dynamics. And I would say, I think that's exactly what is going on is it's changing the calculus for the populace. And especially in countries where domestic public opinion is is important, and there are some instances in where it's not, right? So especially in North Korea, I don't think very much that the Kim regime cares a lot about what the domestic populace feels. But certainly in other nuclear aspirants, even countries that started down the nuclear path, really never built up a full weapons program, but was was interesting at the outset, um, thinking here about West Germany, Australia, some other countries, the the fact that the United States has or other countries have said, you know, we'll provide protection for you, we'll be part of a of a regional organization or international organization with you will extend nuclear deterrence, not to those two countries, but others, um, or will provide military assistance. I think that does actually change how the population feels about it. Certainly when we think about Japan, for example, um, actions that were done by the international system have dramatically impacted domestic, internal debates and discussions about nuclear weapons or even the likelihood of pursuing nuclear weapons. Japan is a nuclear state, so it has all the necessary technological precursor technology to actually acquire nuclear weapons if it chose to do so. But because of external activities, it will never do that. And so I think there is a really nice interplay between some of these external inducements, um, external shocks to the system, so to speak, and then what happens domestically that is I think really does explain what's going on here. Um, I would be reticent, or I would be remiss to mention that there's a whole host of literature that comes before me that has focused on specific countries of interest like Argentina, um, Brazil, South Africa, where scholars have done exactly that. And I think the next step is really taking both of these arguments and seeing which one is more effective or more useful in explaining the outcomes of interest. If your hunch is right, it's probably going to be in combination.
0: All right. Thank you, Dr. Mehta. Um, So this uh, last question in the Q&A is from Tim Munch. um, And the question is related to the earlier question on the USSR breakup and the impact of nuclear reversal. Could a NATO future include the breakup to the extent that the nuclear option it is now uh, it now has is abandoned?
1: Um. Gosh. Uh. That's a very scary prospect. Um. I don't know. I. I think if I need the answer to that, I also need a different job. But um. I hope not. I mean, I this is where I think my personal, or not my personal, but my sort of civilian knowledge more than my research knowledge comes more into play here. But I hope it's not the case that 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 could happen. It very well could be though. Um, it's no, it's no secret that NATO's in structural integrity has been challenged, and there's lots of concerns within the NATO community about who's going to be there to, to protect other NATO states and what that would even look like and you know who should be included and who should not be. Um, so it would not at all be surprising to me if those questions are called into play, but I think we're seeing a NATO future like the, like, along the lines of what we saw at the, uh, in the collapse of the Soviet Union, I, 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 I would be very scared, and I, I hope would never happen. But certainly, it's an important question, and one that I think should remind all of us about the importance of our alliances and international institutions like NATO. All
0: right. Thank you, Dr. Meta. Um, People are still submitting questions. um, As I uh, wrap up, Um, would you be able to answer um, a few more questions here? Of of course, of course. Okay. No, 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 please. All right. Um, This next question from Mike Traynor is, given the accelerating transition from unipolarity to multipolarity, if other peer powers have interests in our security situation, um, facing more complications and stresses, are the historic precedents still valid to the current proliferation environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's the $10,000 question or million dollar question here. Um, You know, can we even use some of these frameworks of our thinking from the Cold War, post-Cold War era and what we're observing today? This is actually part of um, the cross-domain project that Nicole alluded to at the outset of my talk. Um, it's, It's the focus of a lot of research that's being done now is to sort of assess whether or not some of these frameworks can even be useful when we're seeing different actors, more actors, different technologies, more technologies, more proliferation and disruptive technologies, um, more more actors just um, in play here. And especially recently, I think not even a clear consensus on who is a hegemon in the international system. Um, I think there are definitely parts of the theoretical and empirical frameworks that are still useful. No doubt. I mean I think the core sort of bargaining dynamics between states is still going to be helpful for us but relaxing a lot of the assumptions um thinking about the system as multipolar not unipolar thinking about more than just the UN Security Council the P5 as the major players and sort of exploring frameworks in which you have multiplayer games or or, um, regional games is going to be critical for us as we're exploring what the 21st century security environment actually looks like Um, and then again also thinking about proliferation not just in terms of uh, nuclear weapons but also in terms of weapons of mass destruction and weapons of mass disruption is going to be really important for us to get a handle on what this is actually going to look like and Yeah, it's very alarming, but um, thankfully, there's a lot of really great scholars like the um, team at UCSD, led by Eric Gartsky and John Lindsay, that are doing exactly this type of research. So I think that um, we're working on it, is that I think the the one answer, but the other answer is that it's going to be a real challenge to us, analytically, to think about what happens next. All
0: right, thank you, Dr. Mehta. Uh, Billy Douglas from NASIC is asking, what's what's next in terms of your research or the field of proliferation studies?
1: Well, I do not know about the field of proliferation studies. I think we're still in um, the world of theory testing. I think a lot of what we've done in the past 20 years is taking some of the theories from the 20th century and really putting um, a hard set of empirical tests to it to see whether or not they stand up against new data. Um, From my perspective as a scholar, I think that's one of the most important things we can do because if we have these theories and they actually don't help us explain the past as well as we thought they do, and then they certainly don't help us explore or forecast what comes next, then that's where I think the bulk of our work should be. And and that's actually what prompted my dissertation project in my first book was, I had just had this hunch that I don't think sanctions are all they're made out to be. And and the data would tell me, or some of the existing studies would say, well, sanctions is where you should go. The policy community relies on sanctions. And the data didn't pan out. So when we start to look at disaggregated or more granular data, we start to see different results emerge. And I think that's really important. Um, so that I think is the next phase or, or the next step for the Perforation Studies community is to really put our theories to a hard test to make sure that we're we're actually observing the implications that we presume we are. Um, for me, in terms of my research, I'm, I'm working on a couple of different things. Um, I'm working on a project on hypersonic um, boost glide vehicles with a co-author, uh, Dr. Paige Cohn uh, at Air University. Um, so we're working on something that I think is really interesting, sort of thinking about how hypersonic technology impacts bargaining and how it impacts the time to just make decisions, especially in such a compressed timeframe. And then I'm sort of working on this ideology project with um, actually a graduate student of mine um, who's gonna be at USC next year. And so we're starting to think about what that's gonna look like. Um, And then I have a couple of other big projects on extended deterrence. Uh, That's actually I think my third book project is gonna be looking at extended deterrence and thinking through what um, the cost and benefits of that are and how they evolve and shift over time. So I've got a bunch of different things that I'm working on, but all of them I think are are all nascent. So we'll have to see what happens next and hopefully um, I'll be able to make some progress on them. But thank you for that question.
0: Yeah of course and we'd be happy to to have you on again to to discuss some of your upcoming research awesome. once it be great. more mature. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, so that's the end of our live event Q&A. Um, so thank you, everyone, for taking the time to, to tune in today to our SMA Strack Combat Event Alliance Speaker Session. Um, and thank you, Dr. Uh, Rupal Mehta, for taking the time to present today. So have a thank great day, so everyone. Much. Thanks.